God, I had this crazy dream last night that there was a new Brian De Palma movie coming out starring Steven Seagal and John Travolta. And then, like, having looked back at Brian De Palma's filmography, I realized it was the fifth film in a franchise that Brian De Palma had directed. And I was, like, telling you all about it. And we're like, oh, I had no idea that Brian De Palma had, like, the fifth entry in this The chance of us not knowing Brian De Palma directed Steven Seagal is... Slim. Nil, yeah, I know, but it was just a crazy dream. It was really, that it was haunting. Like a, an yeah, dream but it was right also, now. it was like, oh, the pandemic's over. Like Brian De Palma's got a new film with the Seagal, and we got to catch up on the the other four films. In the uh, yeah, I theoretically. <laughs> it was agree. really strange. It was a haunting dream. <laughs> you got to take a vacation or something, man. I know. <laughs> I also had a haunting dream in the form of of Otto Preminger's Rosebud. I don't remember. Have you seen Rosebud, Andy? No, no, I just hit that bumping. I'm sorry, what more? Have you seen Rosebud, the Otto uh, Preminger movie? Uh, it's where, like, the, the Black September kidnaps uh, a bunch of, you know, children of industrialists. Oh, and God. Then... I just scrolled across <laughs> it and the Amazon Prime the other day. Yeah. That's why it's in my mind. No, I never. Seen oh, my that. God. It's uh, all that matters is that at a certain point, Peter O'Toole faces off with Richard Attenborough, and Attenborough is uh, the the funder of Black September, and he's in the full uh, sort of like Muslim gear, and he faces him. <laughs> Dude, it's amazing. He faces him down, and he's like, you know, Peter O'Toole's like working for the CIA. He's like, I get you a meeting with Israel, and he's like, meetings are over, my friend. It's time for the jihad. <laughs> <laughs> and it's fucking Richard Attenborough. I was losing it, it's man. Time for the jihad. <laughs> yeah, I, I can't. The policeman isn't there to create disorder. The policeman is there to preserve disorder. Gentlemen, get the thing straight once and for all. We clear the streets along this route, deploy our men, and create an impassable barrier. A gauntlet, if you will. He won't have a chance. I challenge you to a duel. It's hot out there. Let's, we all walk out there. Very, very, very hot. Open fire! Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Gauntlet. My name is Ryan Saunders. I'm one of your hosts, and I am joined here with... Andrew Stasiulis. And... Eric Marsh. And this is a weekly double feature podcast where each week one person chooses the theme and the other two hosts choose a different film in response to that theme. And then we run the gauntlet with those films. So this week it was my turn to pick the theme and for this week I chose Gone Fishing. I wanted the boys to to get me outside, get me in the open air. You know, it's been a year of being trapped indoors and uh, staring at the same stuff every day. So I thought, you know, get me on the water, guys. And Andy, why don't you talk about what what you picked for this week? I went with a film that I was very surprised neither of you had seen before, which is Michael Anderson's Orca, the killer whale. For those who haven't seen Orca, I could summarize it really quickly here, but I'm gonna summarize it in a, in a slightly different way. So usually when people summarize it, they summarize this film from the perspective of Richard Harris, you know, <laughs> who's this, this fisherman. But I'm gonna summarize it the way that I think it should be summarized, which is from the perspective of the protagonist, Orca, the whale. 
So the film is roughly uh, a story of a whale who's just living his life, enjoying himself, and then some shitty Irish fisherman kills his mate in a very brutal, awful scene, which we can talk about a little bit later. And then Orca, enraged with grief, wages a one-whale war against these shitty fishermen and the the you know it becomes basically this beautiful and brutal and disgusting revenge film of this whale who was wronged by man his pregnant mate i think is worth mentioning well too. yeah we We'll get, get into, into that it, yeah. scene, but yeah, but yeah, uh, it's uh, basically a revenge film. I mean, I think somebody even described it once as like Death Wish, which is a good way of thinking about this film. It's like imagine Death Wish, but instead of Charles Bronson, it's a, a killer whale. Absolutely, Marsh. What did uh, what did you bring to the table? So I chose Ninety Two in the Shade from nineteen seventy five. Written and directed by the novelist Thomas McGuane, who uh, is most known for being a novelist, but also was a screenwriter in the 1970s, writing films like Rancho Deluxe for Frank Perry and Missouri Breaks uh, a year after this film. It is about Key West and its inhabitants. Specifically, Tom, played by Peter Fonda, is sort of uh, the son of a wealthy family in the Keys, and he wants to become a guide boat guy. What do you think? <laughs> the best guides I know. Mm-hmm. Guides or guides? Guides, fishing guides. Guides, good. But yeah, he he takes people out fishing. He's like a fishing guide. Right. Well, he aspires to be a fishing guide. He aspires to be, yes. And in the process of Tom trying to become a fishing guide, he comes into conflict with a couple of local fellow guides, played by Warren Oates and Harry Dean Stanton. And the film is very much, you know, I was thinking about this, Orca kind of represents, you know, there's sort of like two genres in the 70s. There's the the disaster blockbuster and the rambling Americana picture. And here we have them, right? (laughs) So this is very much like the rambling new Hollywood kind of thing you would expect in the vein of sort of Five Easy Pieces or other Peter Fonda work. It's a hangout movie. It's so, it's something like a hangout movie. It's totally. definitely a film that responds to its cast. I mean, if you look at a cast that has Warren Oates, Harry Dean Stanton, and Peter Fonda in it, you you get a sense of what that film might be like. And then this feels like the most extreme version of uh, getting those three guys in a room together and just letting them riff about fishing would be. Yeah, you know, one of the reasons I picked it is because a couple years ago we had the pleasure of seeing Peter Fonda's The Hired Hand uh, at Chicago Film Society. And that's another Oates and Fonda sort of, you know, written by Alan Sharp, a novelist, crazy sort of psychodrama, melodrama, Western. And, And I was really blown away by it. And I was hoping that 92 in the Shade would bring some of the similar magic that I found in The Hired Hand. However... Let's just say Thomas McGuane is no Peter Fonda in the sort of directing seat, I think. And we, you know, again, we'll get into that. Yeah. More a novelist than a yeah. filmmaker. <laughs> but yeah. because of that, there's a lot of really unique things that uh, I think we find in this film that we wouldn't find in 
some other ones, but I feel the same way. I'm pretty conflicted. There were half the time I thought this was one of the greatest films I've ever seen, and then the other half of the time I was like doubting my own sanity and thinking that I was just a fool for even you know taking it as such. On paper, this film, you know, oh, it's, I've got the we've got the guys, you know, it's Florida, you know, here we go. It's gonna be an atmospheric, rambling, you know, mood piece, and then wanting that so badly. I'm or at least in watching it, I think I was occasionally doubting, you know, if I was just projecting that onto the film at times, just because it's like. Uh, nearly incoherent, but in a way that I do find really, really fun. You're always on the damn flats out there in front of me. Yes, sir, I'm kind of studying you. <laughs> I wonder how come. Uninvited and all. Well, I enjoy water sports. Very good. But I wouldn't really recommend it. But I wasn't applying for recommendations. You don't follow me. I am suggesting how unattractive a day on the open water can get. Not that there has to be any ambiguity about it, but I was really thrilled with both of these choices. Um, they both, you know, fit the prompt perfectly, and they both scratched, like, different itches. It was nice because the locales are extremely different, you know, with 92 in the shade. It's balmy Florida, everyone's sunbaked. It's, like, dirty. No one really looks like they've been washing. I was sweating just watching. Yeah, that. absolutely. Yeah. And then um, Orca is up in Newfoundland, right? So it's that like kind of like chilly, cloudy fishing, right? You well, know? Newfoundland and apparently Malta. Yeah, but it is attempting to evoke, you know, extreme North America, especially as the film like ends up um, in like the polar regions, right? Yeah. By the end, as it's getting colder and colder. But yeah, so you've got the classic. You know, I don't know if they're in, in, trying to wreck my brain now, even thinking about it, how many sweaters are on showcase in Orca. And I actually think there might not be, but there are all those, you know, felt hats and th those kind of coats and turtlenecks. And it's a very specific fishing vibe. And then 92 in the shade is like everyone's button ups are open, their hair is spilling out of their shirts, they're just falling asleep yeah. outside. Yeah, there's a number of people who are just sort of napping. Uh, in the spaces that the scenes are shot in sometimes. And that is, yeah, that's a really nice touch. Occasionally they even look deceased, I thought. <laughs> There's one guy that just has his mouth hanging open, and I was like, if that's not a dummy, then I think they accidentally filmed a dead man and had to clean him up after they were done with the shot. Well, you know, I've spent a lot of time down in Florida and Alabama. I have relatives in Alabama. I have relatives in Florida. And I can tell you that, man, there are some times down there when it is so hot your body and brain just shut down like that. And all right. you can do is just like lay somewhere in whatever kind of, you know, cool little spot you can find. Mm -hmm. So like, oh my goodness gracious. I felt that too, man. I, re I really did. Yeah, it is a nice contrast because I was admiring Richard Harris's wardrobe throughout the movie. He's got the ratty sort of sweater. Uh, but by the end, when he goes, you know, man versus beast, he's got the black pea coat of doom, you know, sort mm -hmm. of uh, looks like it. it's a great coat. There's only one creature in the world that could do that. A killer whale. So maybe a little bit more context uh, behind it, um, which I think is actually really quite funny because it is an interesting group of people brought together. So apparently the story goes that one day Dino De Laurentiis, uh, the legend, <laughs> saw Jaws and got very upset and got pissed off about it. And uh, he called his uh, producing pal Luciano Vincenzoni in the middle of the night. It was like, I've seen Jaws. We got to do better than that. You have to find us a sea creature that is bigger and more terrifying 
than the the great white shark of Jaws. So Vincenzoni, uh, he sort of was like, fuck, what the hell am I going to do? And uh, he was talking to, I guess the story goes like his brother, uh, who was like a zoologist, maybe even an amateur zoologist or something. And he was like, oh, well, you know about orcas? Those things are fucking sick. They're huge. They're big. And he's like, could a orca kill a shark? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So from that, it sort of launched then this this task of, of writing this story that could specifically stand up against Jaws, right? That could st- specifically go after, after Jaws. But also, you know, De Laurentiis had a couple other, like, ideas that apparently he sort of imposed. And one of his big things was saying, but also, unlike Jaws, I want our creature to be sympathetic. Like, that was a big thing for him as well. And there was a quotation of his uh, that I came across where he said, after seeing Jaws and then thinking about Orca and making a sympathetic creature, he said, when Jaws dies, nobody cry. When King Kong dies, everybody cries, right? (laughs) He kind of sounded Jamaican there, but like, you get the point, you know? He was sort of like, hey, you know, I would rather have something that the audience is gonna, you know, say like, whoa, look at this majestic creature. So they settled on then, you know, Orcas as, as a killer whale. And, you know, you see right off the bat, to, to even, like, get that point across, right? In the opening of the film, Richard Harris, who is a, a sailor, he's a fisherman who's decided it's more lucrative to capture big marine, you know, animals to sell to, you know, SeaWorld or scientists or whoever would want them. And he and his crew are going after a, a great white shark. They find a great white shark. And, of course, it's like, oh, great white shark jaws and everything. And right out of nowhere, an orca comes in and just destroys the great white shark. So right off the bat, there's this really kind of funny bit of, of you know, De Laurentiis and his crew more or less being like, fuck Jaws, watch oh, this yeah. shit. You it's know? explicit. And even the Morricone score is is going after Williams in that moment, you can tell. Uh, and yeah, I was very I was very amused by that. Just like, oh, this is... Yeah, this is straight up the Rio Bravo to High Noon. This is a response film. Yeah, 100%. And and again, like, you know, in, in saying that I, I kind of view it as the, the orca's story, like the, I see the, the, the whale as the protagonist. Yeah. The film opens with this really beautiful sequence, like you said, with the Morricone score. And you just see these majestic orcas. This, yeah, they're this, all hanging this couple. out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they're swimming and there's this beautiful love theme that's playing in the background. Yeah. And then that is immediately disrupted by humans. And specifically, like, Richard Harris as this fucking huckster of a, of a, of a fisherman who's just going to try to, like, snatch one of them up. Yeah. And he meets Charlotte Rampling, who plays a sort of marine biologist-type character, who explains to him, like, well, you know, orcas are these majestic creatures, and they're really smart, and there's this whole kind of, like, exposition dump about that so of course he gets it in his mind well if it's so special it's probably gonna catch a good price so he decides to go after it and then this leads to you know the inciting incident i guess if you want to call it that of the film where while richard harris is going after and trying to capture a male orca he sort of fucks up and he accidentally like harpoons the female mate right yeah nicking the 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 fin of the male orca on the way. So you get to, we're able to, we have like a clear that that's him whenever we see his yeah. fan on screen. His dorsal is, he's got this big chunk taken out of it, which is kind of gross. And then, yeah. yeah. And then they skewer this, this, this female orca. And as if that's not bad enough, the female orca then apparently tries to, to kill herself by, by, you know, just ramming herself into the boat's propellers. And it's a very gory sequence, which only gets 
more gory once they actually haul her up on the boat. And this is, you know, for me, when I was picking this movie, and I was so happy that neither of you had seen this movie, it was specifically in mind because of this scene, particularly, you know, which is, I think, the scene, once you've seen it, that just is seared into your brain. Oh, I'll never lose it from my mind. It's horrifying. It was truly shocking. Yeah, so, uh, you know, for our listeners, Ryan, why don't you tell everybody what happens in in uh, in this scene? Yeah, so after she attempts to commit suicide with the propeller, they they string her up and they've got her hung upside down on the boat. And then she's wailing and screaming. Wailing. <laughs> she's wailing. Yeah, there's got like him. the horrible, high-pitched, uh, almost human orca cry. And then slithering out of her is her, her fetus child that seems to have like to be slightly animated it uh, it is alive um yeah it's it, like a she has like a miscarriage over she the, has like the a trauma miscarriage. of this yeah and, and as discussed in charlotte rampling's lecture earlier the fetus of a killer whale looks like a human baby but huge and so there again yeah the film is really going yeah to great lengths to to paint the whales as like human-like Giving them all sorts of yeah, sort of anthropomorphizing yeah. choices in the in the style of the film, and so yeah, this moment especially again, it's like set up by yeah, you see this lecture and you're learning about it and learning about the babies and how killer whales mate, and then yeah, here comes Richard Harris in the ratty sweater, yeah, just ready to harpoon anything that moves. And then on top of that, when the to the to the crew's horror, when this fetus sort of pops out and lands on the deck, their only solution in this like shocking moment is to grab a hose and flush it off the yeah. deck. It's like just unceremoniously. It's like so gross, man. It is so gross. Yeah, and immediately Richard Harris shows regret. It would just it went as horribly as it possibly could. And he's like, <laughs> yeah. I shouldn't be doing this. You know, we gotta go back to hunting the great whites. Yeah. We fucked up. Yeah. You know? But it is it's it's like a dedicated effort by the film to make them the fish seem more human than the humans themselves. I mean, it seemed like Charlotte Rampling's entire lecture was designed to give the orcas intent yeah, and, you know, to, to develop that pathos because she even claims that the orcas are supposed to be so much smarter than humans. Now, these three brains are of a monkey, a human being, and this is the brain of a killer whale. We know very little about the nature of the whale's intelligence, except that it exists and is powerful. And in some respects, may even be superior to man. Did either of you, I didn't fact check most of that stuff, but I do know that orcas are quite intelligent. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, you know, the, the whale language thing, I think, has been very well established. Mm-hmm. I mean, they are very intelligent creatures right. and they are very sensitive creatures as well. Yeah. I mean, dolphins and whales particularly. I mean, growing up, that's, those are so many stories that I'd always, you know, heard or mm-hmm. read or watched in nature documentaries was their, you know, how close they actually are to humans in in so many respects. You know, it's like dolphins. Dolphins fuck for pleasure like that's been proven like they they don't simply and they also plant bombs on the bottom of boats in uh, the day of the dolphin 1975 that's true the military was like training dolphins to like be able to like you know more or less like 
plant minds and shit on boats. I mean, they're very, very, very intelligent creatures. And that's, of course, you know, then the whole setup for the film is that this, she, you know, Charlotte Rampling tells Richard Harris, like, he knows what you did and he knows who you are and he will not stop coming for you. you right. Know? That's what, and, and that sort of makes him the, the thing that's controlling the narrative, which is a little bit different than Jaws because it's like, there's that fear of the unknown. Like, oh, is the, is the great white, is Jaws going to be around? You know, I mean, by the end, you know, he is like, it's like, kind of feels like a direct attack but when they're when they're hunting him but in orca orca's in charge you know he's setting the entire fishing community against him because the orca is tearing apart all of their boats and scaring away the fish and ruining their livelihood so they get mad at richard harris and they say you can't abandon this you know you started this shit you gotta go kill that orca yeah, I think it's a good point, though, too, because, you know, the comparisons to Jaws, the, the you know, the, the many attacks on this film, and, and I feel like it, it should be said that this is a movie that many, many people think is garbage, you know, they think it's trash and junk, and a, a cheap Jaws knockoff has often been, like, one of the biggest criticisms labeled against it, but for points that we've already brought up, like, and, and a whole bunch of others, like, I actually think there's a little bit more going on with this film that, that makes it interesting in the ways that it isn't Jaws, that it isn't trying to be Jaws. And obviously, the, the sympathetic creature is, is, is a huge part of it, but it's the whole relationship, I think, between humans and nature. You know, in Jaws, it's so fucking Spielberg, right, that it's like, look at this beautiful town, and oh my goodness, this, this wild creature from nature is is got the town under siege and what are we gonna do we've got to save the town you know there's all this kind of crap you know like oh nature's just this 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 monstrous thing but in this it's quite the opposite like the humans are just fucking everything up mm -hmm. you know that these whales were fine left alone but it's actually humanity it's civilization that proves far more monstrous than anything in nature and I think that's a really, like, a point that, that, to me, like, this film deserves credit for, you know? That it wasn't just saying, oh, yeah, look at all the creepy, monstrous creatures in the ocean. It was sort of like, wow, look at these beautiful things, and then look what we fucking do to them. Look know? at these beautiful things, and then look at Richard Harris. I mean, yeah, like, it is... I really did. I found it interesting how the film developed because after the Richard Harris character, you know, has this debacle with the whales, the the whale, the orca starts, you know, as you said, attacking the town and sort of like attacking people's boats. And another sort of human element is the way the whale attacks everyone around him first it's almost like it's on purpose so he's got this crew and they all one by one start getting eaten as if the orca is saying like i will eat your your friends and your family and then as that, you did to mine as you, you know, did yeah. to mine and then it brings in this sort of like half-baked richard harris backstory where uh his pregnant wife was in a car accident and died and so he has all this, you know, this anger and this rage building in him from his personal experience. And then he realizes, oh, my God, I've done this, but to a to a goddamn orca. And so, you know, the whole middle section of the film is this very like he once he respects the whale, he's afraid of it. Right. And at first he's not afraid of them at all. And he learns more about them and he has this debacle. And then he's like just so shook. He's just brooding. The whole town wants him to go and he's just brooding. His his crewmates are getting eaten one by one in various incidents. And the film just like 
does parallel editing between him and the orca constantly connecting them spiritually as these like aggrieved husbands Mm -hmm. and fathers and it's like with morricone it's like fairly you know it's like pretty lyrical in a a certain way i mean dude there's that beautiful line even where like he really kind of like breaks down where he even admits like that whale loved his family more than i loved mine you know like and realizing wow like this this thing is you know, like more, more human than me, more human more than human, human, right? human Yeah, because yeah. he sort of just abandoned his own revenge quest against the drug driver, presumably, but also kind of lives like a passive life. I mean, through that that whole middle section, his his motivations for going after the whale seem like they shift constantly, or like he never make up his mind. Like he's just always like acting on a whim, and that's also what's frustrating everyone around him too. Yeah, but also like in fairness, when I was watching the film, I was kind of like, what the? It seemed like everybody else was all over the place too, like. Like, you know, you've also got the the great, um, you know, Native American actor Will Sampson in there in a sort of, you know, token yeah, indigenous token, role. Yeah. Like, I'm Jacob Umalak and I... Yeah, know constantly all... talking about his ancestors and right. what they think about orcas. Right, yeah. so you, you have, like, Charlotte Rampling is, like, the scientist breaking things down. And then he's sort of brought in to be this the almost, spiritual. like... The spiritual aspect of the orca. But, you know, Umalak, the, the Will Sampson character, even is like, you got to go after this whale. But then later when they're, they're like on the quest, Umalak's like enough, we're turning around, we're going back, you know? <laughs> well, they run out of gas. Charlotte, yeah. But, but also like even Charlotte Rampling's character, like it, it kind of like is weird in the sense that it's like, she's sitting there early in the film, like next to the corpse of this butchered female orca that Richard Harris, like just shamefully slaughtered. And then, you know, she's like, did you do this? And he's like, yeah, I did that or whatever. And then she's like, great, we should get in bed. You know, like she wants yeah. to like have this romance with him where I'm sort of like, feels kind of like a non-starter if you're a marine biologist and you, you saw what this guy did, this this drunk Irish fisherman, you know? But even her motivations are like kind of bizarre because she's also going along with it. Like she's also going along with this hunt. Yeah, I do think in a lot of ways, this film feels like a producer's film in that Right, the concept came first, and you know Dino is, is involved. He's paying for this thing. And and I imagine the production was, was fairly difficult. And there does seem to be, like, to me, the weakest element of the film is just the, the way the, the actors interact and the way the characters interact. There, there's sort of, like, a disconnect, which, like, to a certain extent is fine because, yeah, it's like ultimately Richard Harris and the Orca one-on-one, you know? But there does seem to be, like, it feels like a film that, like, took a long time to shoot and there's not a lot of consistency. And and again, even just character motivation being one thing in one scene and another thing in another scene, you're just like, was anyone keeping track? Or were you worried about, yeah, filming whales and filming on water? Uh, Yeah, well, (laughs) considering the fact that it was, like, a a U.S.-financed... Italian production shot in Canada with a British director. I imagine there was probably a lot of uh, disconnects at various times about what works, what doesn't work, what's yeah. good and what isn't good, you know, because, yeah, like you said, I mean, Laurentis is very much, you know, he was laser focused on this idea of just sort of like beating Jaws. And then, you know, from that point on, it seems like he more or less just turned the production over to Luciano Vincenzoni and his screenwriting partner, Sergio Donati. And, you know, these two for me are, are very special names because, as you both know, I'm a huge Sergio Leone fan and they basically wrote his best movies more or less as as writing partners but yeah in this case the film is so sort of 
poorly written in that sense, you know, aside from the premise, you know, and the idea behind it, this, this dual man versus nature, but with a twist because man is the monster, you know, but yeah, I mean, as far as like the humans are concerned, like I feel the whale is way more fucking developed. than I was going to say, yeah, he's fully characterized as the humans are not. Yeah. Even the fisherman's guild, uh, guy who sort of threatens, uh, Harris a few times, like ultimately they just do nothing. They're just sort of like, you, you need to leave. And then they just like go back to drinking on the docks or whatever they fix his boat like as fucking fast as possible at one point they're just like all right look we fixed your boat free of charge get the fuck out of here you know Mm. and he's like well i guess if that's the case i gotta go but i mean the whale like practically destroys this whole fishing village like there's a couple sequences where this whale is like it opens up the gas lines and sets the town on fire like (laughs) a final destination movie yeah If there is that comparison to, you know, as you said, different type of 70s, you know, film of these sort of, you know, this this spate of like vigilante justice, you know, reactionary kind of films like this one's quite interesting because it is that the whale, in my view, is the protagonist. He's driving the action. He has every reason to to be doing what he's doing you know he's, he's been wronged in a very horrifying way it's it's such a unique film among those films because in a lot of them you you see these characters and you're kind of like geez really you're doing all this but in this movie i'm like i'm rooting this thing on the whole time yeah, i'm there, cheering for there's it, no scenes know? in jaws that make you uh that like you're touched by the you know the life of of the great white you know? no it's a monster yeah the orca not a monster i mean that sequence creature. in the film when and the orca is essentially like using his head to like push his, the corpse of his wife oh up to the shore as like a message. Um, yeah. And it's like shot at sunset, and the the more corny score is like swelling. It's like weirdly touching to see. I wrote down in my notes that it felt like an Italian funeral. <laughs> <laughs> it is like yeah. a funeral, right? Because yeah, yeah. They're, they're, there's a procession. Yeah, they're all around. And. Ennio's just blaring away, you know, just like this mournful score. Yeah, I like when he's hanging out with all the other orcas. I mean, I think a great white's more of a solitary creature, but it would have been nice if Jaws had the great white. Had friends? Yeah, hanging out with the boys, you know? Yeah, Jaws was a fucking loser. <laughs> yeah, he sucks. Yeah. He's just yeah. a loner piece of shit. But Orca yeah. has like and, a and nice like developed community. And like void of meaning as well, yeah. you know? Mm-hmm. That's the thing with Jaws. It's like, for all the fucking years that people just, you know, love that movie. And I am not a big Jaws fan for some reason. I'm just, it just I mean, I like Jaws a lot. But I know what you mean. It's yeah, it's it's like it's a fine movie, you know, but I think the way people sort of like lionize it, it always just kind of misses me. But a lot of Spielberg films do that for me. I mean, we, we talked about it. You know me. I'm not a huge Spielberg guy other than being like, yeah, he makes a fine film, you know, but it's like in all the years, the ways that people have interpreted Jaws as being like, it, it means this, right? And, it's about Chappaquiddick. Right. It's, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. It, it's, it's, you know, it's a metaphor for Khrushchev or what, I don't know. It's like, <laughs> uh, it's like all these different ways. And it, it just kind of shows to me that this sort of like, you know, there, there really isn't anything about it other than just being like, no, it's just a fucking shark. And that's what sharks do. But in this case, you're right. I mean, it's like, 
this whale isn't standing for anything other than a human being, practically. Yeah. That's been wronged. There's certainly never a scene in Jaws where the shark, like, makes eye contact with his target, you know? And there's multiple scenes of that. Yeah, that's a great recurring motif where there's extreme close-ups of the orca's eye and then a little, like, uh, you know, special effect reflection of either Richard Harris Mm -hmm. or Charlotte Rampling in the eye of the orca. But also, you know, comparing it to Jaws in that respect, I mean, what's the famous line that uh, Robert Shaw says in Jaw and Robert Shaw says in Jaws? Holy, holy fucking shit! But he says, "What do he say?" He goes, "You see those eyes? Nothing in those eyes. Black eyes, like a doll's yeah. eyes. You know, it's like <laughs> he said, there's nothing behind it." But in this case, to your point, Marsh, there's so much behind those eyes. There, there is something behind those eyes, and we feel it, and mm-hmm. we see it throughout the film. And I love in those sequences, too, when the idea is that the orca's screams and intense stares are timed with the red light flashing from the lighthouse. So it does feel like he's screaming for blood. Yeah. I mean, it's it's definitely a messy film, right? I'm not gonna, yeah. I'm not gonna stand here oh, and yeah. say that it's it's even as as tight or you know technically sound as as Jaws, but in spite of that, you know, being a sort of De Laurentiis, you know, hatchet job or whatever, like it's it's surprisingly like there's some really really. I think really great moments in it. And like, I will say one thing I read in, in seeing different reviews of this is people were like, Oh, and the, you know, the whales don't look really good. And these prosthetic whales or these rubber whales they're using, but I thought they looked great. Yeah. That's crazy. I thought they looked amazing. I mean, I even read a blurb that because the whales looked so real, environmental activists were like blocking traffic when they were like lugging them over because they'd have them on the, on a, on a truck and they thought it was real. So they're trying to stop them To, to be perfectly honest. Like I had a hard time telling, when it was shifting between the real orcas and the the fake ones. Absolutely. And I think that's also where you see the Italian, you know, craftsmanship in this film. You know, maybe they don't understand humans very well, <laughs> but but damn, they know production design. Damn, yeah. like those carpenters. I mean, the design then it's 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 so it's you know, that's the thing that I always knew growing up and had learned about, you know, the the legendary Italian carpenters and production designers, you know, that they could build anything, they could create anything. Mm-hmm. And to me, anyone who says that, oh, it's, it looks shitty in this way, I'm like, no, it fucking looks great. Yeah, there, and there's does. like epic glittery ocean stuff throughout, of course, because, you know, they're out on the on the damn ocean and it looks fantastic. It's, yeah, there is like yeah, a lot of sort of like shimmery, glittery uh, cinematography as well with like filters and like shooting the whales. Again, mm-hmm. trying to, you know, using every cinematic device they can to be like, sympathize with this yeah with this orca yeah some people like rip on the you know the like the composite shots they have throughout the film of like the way oh, those are like, amazing leaping out but yeah i think they're fucking yeah. beautiful I think it kind of reminded they're me poetic. of like goodbye yeah. to language when they don't totally align like when the camera moves yeah i like the way it looked though i think it looks cool yeah the only time i felt that the whale looked fake um was those pov shots where it seemed as if the camera was attached to the whale's back and that's just because the motion you know because he was attached to the camera um kind of gave off that like plastic effect but also i thought that was sick as hell well you know i was just thinking as well because we've you know we are talking about 
these films in comparison. I, I think it is interesting to point out that there is, to me, a connection between these two films in that 92 in the Shade also presents humans as far more destructive <laughs> to their environment, you know, that humans are, are far more yeah. vicious and and predatory than uh, than anything you're gonna find in the fucking ocean, right? <laughs> sure. I mean, I I was when I was watching that movie, I at one point wrote down my note was just everybody's fucking with everybody, you know? Like ninety two in the shade was was like it, they were they were like a fucking pack of sharks in that movie, mm-hmm. you know? I was really blown away by that. Yeah, the, I mean the so I guess you know an, an early moment in the film is that insane prank that they pull on Peter Fonda and it's also it's like a multi-layered prank um so early in the film when they like track down Warren Oates um and Warren Oates is you know he's like lost his wife and he's just bummed out and he's in a shit mood and they're hanging out on the pier and he gets all fired up because one of his other guys is you know like oh what's ailing you and so Warren Oates grabs a hook and then he he chases after uh one of the other fellow fishermen and then like nicks him in the belly I mean, um, it's not a Nick. That guy, he practically got fucking skewered. Well, he, actually, <laughs> yeah. so that was part of my question is I, I was wondering if he truly did get skewered or if it was all an elaborate prank. Because I guess to expand a little bit more, just to clarify, like, what happens afterwards, War Notes is then is put in jail because he killed that man. And then Peter Fonda goes out on the water to do his first fishing guide. And then he like jumps out into the water uh, in his jeans, which is super funny. And it's just like wading through and trying to catch fish with his bare hands. And by the time he returns to his boat, his clients are gone. And the idea is that maybe they're missing, you know, in the water. But then he returns and his clients are just hanging out in the bar Warren Oates is no longer in prison and they all reveal that it was just this elaborate gag. So I guess the only thing, and maybe this was just a failure of me watching it, was I was curious. So obviously him going to prison was a a part of the gag. Was him like stabbing him? Because I thought what I heard was they were saying that that guy didn't want to press charges against him or whatever, right? Or did I but misread no, when that? When he's whole in scenario? the prison cell, he tells Peter Fonda, "I killed him." Yeah, he says, he's, "Roy's dead. I killed him. He's I'm going to be locked up for twenty years." Yeah, and he also says that immediately after he hits Roy with the with the hook. He's like, "Well, I guess I'm going to prison. Here well, I go. Yeah. My fishing." But here's done. the thing: Roy is later in the movie, and he's fine. Yeah. He's fine. Yeah. Well, no, they they clarify it too because he's yeah he's not dead. And then when they reveal that he didn't go to prison, Warren Oates says like, "Hey, it was just a scratch." Just, yeah, you know. I don't think I honestly can't tell which parts of this elaborate sort of and it, it, I mean it is a prank, but it's also you know we should say that the the Warren Oates and Harry Dean Stanton characters do not want Tom to be a guy. Take their business. Take their business. These guys are are local guys. They're blue collar guys. They don't like him and they don't want him to do it. So it's sort of their, yeah, they're kind of, kind of trying to just drive him away and, and drive him away from the business. And I can't tell, yeah, I can't tell how much of it was staged yeah. because I rethought it all later going, oh, was the attack staged? I can't tell. Yeah. That's the one thing I have a question about. I guess I read it, see the way I read it was like that was also just establishing that Warren Oates is a fucking ticking time bomb that'll go off at any given mm-hmm. moment. Like, because even the way he like delivered it to me was like, you know, he's like, right after he like skewers this guy with a fish hook, he just like sits down, the guy's bleeding behind him and he's like, well, all cause of this. Now I got to go to the slammer, you know, like it's that guy's <laughs> fault. Like 
you shouldn't have pissed me off. Look what you did. You know what I'm like, you know? Uh-huh. Yeah. And and the guy's just laying there, like, well, who had just been playing with his puppy or whatever. Right. The sweet, gentle guy. Warren yeah. yeah. <laughs> fish hooks his ass, you know? So but even in that respect, I was like, I don't know if that's a prank. I mean, like, I, I guess I could see it, it being also, a prank, but like, who would sign up for that of being like, yeah, and you just stab me with a fish hook. And it won't be so bad, you know, and it'll be a big setup. I think I I read it as, and, and again, I could be totally wrong with this, but like when I read it, I, I saw that as just like establishing him as this fucking nutcase. Right. And then like that guy you know, didn't die. He thought he died. You know, like I killed his ass. He went to the hospital or whatever. And the guy didn't press charges. And then he was like, yeah, he didn't. Cause he said at one point he didn't press charges, you know? So I guess that's the only reason why I was reading that as like, that actually happened. The prank was something else as well. You know, the, the, the fishing. Yeah. I mean, he's actually in prison. It's not like Peter Fonda went to a fake prison where they were pretending he was in jail. Even in that jail scene, he tells him the story of when he killed a man before, you know, under like a similar kind of, I lost my fucking cool and I fucking killed this guy. And for the record, that to me is maybe the best scene in the film. It's just Warren Oates sitting in a jail cell talking to Peter Fonda and he just gives a classic, again, a very novelistic sort of, I killed the guy once and he tells this whole story uh, and it's just pure oats. It's just depraved. It's weirdly sensitive. Um, it's great. Every it. word Warren Oates says in the film, um, I mean, it feels like he's speaking in verse, right? You know, and it's hard to take everything he says at face value or it all feels multi-layered. And it's just... It, the lines he says are unbelievable. And, and in that scene when he's talking about, oh, I don't want to, you know, I've killed a man before and I don't want to be in prison forever. He he basically, he starts talking about how it's like, ah, I'm not going to be able to get laid. But then he has that line where he says, well, my next piece of ass will be in about 20 years, I imagine. And I'm the kind of guy I'd fuck a brush pile if I thought there's a snake in it. You know, and you're like, <laughs> yeah. where's this coming from? Like, who is this poet down in Florida, you know? It makes total sense when you consider that this film was written and directed by a guy who was primarily a fucking writer, a novelist, mm-hmm. right? It's the only film An ever directed, yeah. Um, and he, yeah, written a several other screenplays as well, but, but yeah, those, all the dialogue in this movie, it's so... Like you said, it's it's like verse. I was even, as I was watching it, kind of saying, this is sort of like fucking Florida hillbilly fucking Shakespeare. I mean, it was like setting these characters up, you know, setting him up and and almost every single character having those moments where they, they lay out their philosophy, you know, their views on life. And, and characters having these very distinct viewpoints, you know? Yeah, one of my favorite moments of that is when Peter Fonda and Margot Kidder are sitting on the bridge and they're fishing. Give me a little slack. You can have the whole thing. <laughs> in the long run, I don't need the whole thing. I just need a little slack. You know, and it's things like that. It's all of these little bits of their philosophies coming. Yeah, coming I, I loved that one of Warren Oates' things, like for me, even in thinking of his character, was that he kept like saying like several times, I just want credence. I just want credence. He you says know? it at least three times. He says it more credence. than that. He says it a bunch. Well, you know? and yeah, I want to get into that because I found that to be one of the the film's strengths. I found was this sort of, and it's like largely unspoken, you know, because the dialogue in the film is very colorful, but it's also like a lot of shop talk about like fishing guide stuff and fish, and it's very like slangy, very reminiscent of Tulane Blacktop in that way, which was something I was thinking about too, like the car slang 
slang and then the fishing slang where it yeah. it all reads as poetry, but it does sometimes feel like they're speaking a totally different language. Yeah, it's like subculture vibes where it's just asking you. And again, I know McGuane, the, the writer, was very much versed in the world of fishing. He himself is a, an obsessive angler, as it were. So yeah, you can tell that for him, it's like... That's what it's all about, really. But what what's really interesting is, again, this sort of like class divide and generational divide between the Peter Fonda character and especially Oates, but also Harry Dean Stanton, right? They're a little older than him. And, and this is interesting because I think, you know, I read that this is like more explicit in the book, but the Fonda character is a, is a counterculture dropout. So it's, it's sort of hinted at but never really d divulged per se but it's like this guy clearly went to college and got involved in the counterculture and, and drugs and, and, and all that in the 60s or even early 70s. Yeah, in the book, he's a recovering addict, which right. the film doesn't really draw any attention to. I mean, there's a couple times where he very like explicitly like turns down a smoke or a drink. But again, it's sort of just all kind of implied. And so for him to come back, and I was thinking about it, right? It's like, here's this guy, he says over and over again, I'm a failure. Being a fishing guy is the only thing I'm half good at. He says that multiple times. And it's like, he gets, he's trying to choose his profession. And he's coming up against guys who haven't cho chose anything in their life. Mm -hmm. Right, yeah. And it almost it's, a, it's seems, a really good point. Yeah, it seems like he's choosing the profession too as like some sort of like young, slightly rich guy uh, well, yeah, rebellion because, against his white-collar family. Yeah, because they, they you know, it is established, and, and you see it several times throughout the film, but like that whole thing that you were talking about with the, the generational divide, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it, you, I think you see it very, um, very explicitly at a few points where they're showing that, you know, yeah, Peter Fonda is this kind of like rich kid, you know, that he's got his, he comes from, from money of some kind, right? His and, family is insane. Yeah, his family's fucking wild, right? His, his grandfather's Burgess Meredith, who plays, what is he, a judge or a lawyer? Like, he's, he's some corrupt kind of, somebody to do with the law, right? It implies that he has something to do with the law in the movie, and he, he sort of lives in this big colonial-style, like, mansion. And I read, I read the New York Times review from 1975, and in the review it says, and I think he's just taking this from the novel, it says he owns the bank and the police. <laughs> yeah. I didn't really get that vibe from the movie per se, yeah. but you get the vibe that Burgess Meredith is this eccentric rich man and, and influential within the town. Down. But apparently, yeah, apparently he owns the bank. But that's, like you said, though, right? You see that because he's the grandfather. British Meredith plays the grandfather. But then there's also Peter Fonda's father, oh, who's yeah. also uh, an eccentric weirdo. So you have, like, these three generations that get laid out in that. And and oh, what is the name of that actor who plays his father? His father? So it's yeah. William Hickey. Right, and yeah. It's curious watching you throw yourself into your life. My approach is to withdraw into my bug-free bedroom here. The search for a religiously plausible future. I mean, he's been in a hundred fucking I'm movies. Like, this is not what I'm remembering from, but then it clicked as I was listening very closely to the way he speaks, and I said, oh, he plays the old man in the Arnold Schwarzenegger-directed episode of Tales from the Crypt. <laughs> Who oh. turns himself into like a young buff man again, so he can like win that woman? That is That's a such that a is good a Tales from the Crypt. Yeah, and 
And he's know, props to you, my man. That is a deep fucking cut. Because yeah. <laughs> first thing that pops into my head is like, oh, yeah, he's the fucking old uncle from uh, Christmas Vacation or whatever. Right. National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. You know? And in a, a slew of other movies where he plays the same fucking crotchety old man, mm-hmm. you know, I was shocked. I'd never seen him that young before. Yeah. Because I feel like he was one of those actors that like could play old from an early age. And so he was just always as a character actor playing crusty old fuckers. But in this, he's sort of like, you know, he looks like not that much older than Peter Fonda, practically. Yeah. Like, but I, he's it still... It took me a minute to realize, like, oh, this is his dad. I thought they were, like, I brothers. I thought it was his or, brother at first. Yeah. It's really confusing. I'd, I'd actually like to But that's like also part of the point, right? Like, the relationship he has with his dad is is a very... It is more of, like, they're practically, like, equals. You know, they're, they're like brothers. And that Burgess Meredith is, like, the patriarch, the yes. grandfather. Because Peter Fonda's dad, like Peter Fonda also a failure a man who had tried many things and sort of failed at them and now is very content to just live on his dad burgess meredith's like money right he's just yes. like spends the whole movie like laying in a bed outside on like the porch or listening whatever. to the nfl on a radio yeah with the, like with a the, green bay game or with whatever. the mosquito net you know over him that he looks like a little prince because he's in all white yeah with the bed. i was confused uh, yeah so is that all that it is he wasn't sick or anything because no. he does seem sickly and unwell no, okay. well he's spiritually sick <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes because as it's laid out right and this again this is the stuff the family stuff really didn't work for me a lot of the time and it feels like it comes from a novel where again and it has again this whole story is like this young man comes home and he's got to find his his way in life and he's going to become a fishing guide but he's got this family and he's got these rivals you know and so the whole family thing it's like his his father ran a whorehouse was involved in blimp manufacturing <laughs> yeah, gas uh, bags. and then yeah gas bags and then got into a uh, spiritual tech as he sort of talks about a couple times mm-hmm. whatever that sort of means and so yeah his his dad is this yeah this dilettante who's just sort of like retreated to the womb mm-hmm. uh sitting on his dad sleeping on his dad's front porch in a mosquito net that is beautifully put because he practically says that too like his advice to peter fonda when peter fonda's talking about his difficulties you know in trying to find his way and make this life i mean his dad practically says to him like what's the point i i'm just happy to lay here you could be just as happy just laying here like retreat like don't fight this crazy world don't fight all this bullshit like Come on, lay down, listen to the game, you know? The fucking the <laughs> yeah. days playing. We're in the middle of fucking Florida. Yeah, and ultimately again, and that and that again to circle back to like what you were talking about originally about Warren Oates wanting credence, right? Yeah. Because again, each of as you pointed out, each of these characters sort of values are kind of espoused throughout the film in various ways. And the Warren Oates character, uh what's his name? Uh Nickel Dance, yeah. right? Dance, Nickel dance. yeah. <laughs> Nickel Dance. So, yeah, Nickel Dance, his whole thing is, you know, he's an old school guy. He's a man of his word. Uh, and when he, you know, is sort of upset with Tom, he's basically just like, all right, I'm going to kill you. And and by me saying I'm going to kill you, I'm going to do it. And I if have I don't, to do and it. I have, right, not even I'm going to, I have to do it because that's who I am. And again, he, this whole film is about failures, right? These guys are all washed up. Oates lost his wife. Like he says, he's got a runaway wife with a trailer. You know, Harry Dean's got his prob, his marital problems uh, <laughs> with, with his cheerleader wife. Yeah, with his majorette wife who, yeah, you know, that with is... With the two different types of self-cleaning ovens that well, she's forcing him to choose between. See, yeah, that's such a, it's such a great moment 
because like you know on a certain level like there is a, a, a surprising amount of depth in some of the characterization in this film it's just that it's all kind of it's all just kind of like a bunch of strands going off yeah. into different directions fragments of a novel yeah because th- i loved that whole interaction that harry dean has with his wife where he's sort of looking you know she's this sort of trophy wife you know she was like a young hot cheerleader you get that you know she was like a championship baton twirler or something yeah. and now she's just like you know, bought totally into that materialist idea of the American dream and stuff like that. So she's just buying all this shit. Fuck, like he's just not into it. And he's like, this is why I got to break my back because of your spending sprees, you know, on these shitty little fishing guides. But there's this like really hilarious line even where she says like, but we've had so much fun with all the stuff we've bought. And it's like, that's how she sums up their whole relationship is like, haven't we had fun with all the shit we've bought in this fucking house? And then I think it's almost immediately afterwards that he says, are you in a family way? Like as if that was his cue that she was pregnant. And then she's like, yep, I, we need to decide between these two self-cleaning ovens because I will no longer have time to clean the oven. I have a child in me. And that scene is a major tell that Carter, the Harry Dean character, has, you know, much sort of, you know, he has the same designs against Tom that that Warren Oates does, right? But it's in a more subtle way because Harry Dean wants Tom gone as much as Oates does. It's just he goes about it differently, right? And almost, you know, kind of manipulating. Absolutely. I, I feel like he... he more than anything is like driving Warren Oates to do it. Right. He's giving him every opportunity, even when it seems like Warren Oates is like, I'm happy to put it off a little bit. And Harry Dean's like, take my boat, go for it, do it. You know, like, I mean, yeah, he's really manipulating both of them. He's sort of playing both of them because he, you know, he pretends to be sort of friendly with Peter Fonda. And then as soon as Peter Fonda's gone, he's like to Warren Oates, like, when are you going to fucking shoot this guy? What's the deal with that? You still, it's like, he's like, Pushing him, yeah, it seems like and that's... pushing his his aspect of like wanting credence because he kind of plays on that with Warren Oates. You know, like you're the big tough guy, you're the legend around here. You know, like if you don't do it, no one's gonna do it. You gotta do it. It's a very vicious character. Like he's a very mean motherfucker. Yeah, they're happy to share uh, the territory with each other, but not this rich kid. He's out. You know, he's gone. And you're right. It, it's again that 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 generational. Um, and class sort of divide like you you see it so clearly in those moments right because here are these you know men who've been struggling and building their boats and living their life and having all their troubles and then Peter Fonda waltzes in and his grandfather can write him a little check and get him this custom made beautiful new boat and it's a beauty it is a beauty oh it's a lovely skiff yeah 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 and that just enrages them even more especially because you know Warren Oates, you know, he's, 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 he's struggling like with that, like junkyard salvage boat. He's trying to rebuild. Did we even mention that? Yeah. So we, I don't think we got this far. No, you're right. After, (laughs) after the uh, gag and sort of prank is pulled on Peter Fonda, he immediately, and this is, again, this is a very interesting moment of the film, right? He immediately, this guy who's like so detached, he goes fucking crazy and blows up. Warren Oates's boat. Yeah. Blows it up. Yeah. 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 So, right, <laughs> yeah. you know, there are discussions later about, you know, proportionate response uh, to, <laughs> you know, certain actions, right? Because yeah. Fonda's very much like, well, you wronged me and and you got what, you know, you got what you deserved. Yeah. And, and Oates is going, I don't really think I did. No, you no, no, know, no, 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 like yeah. you blew up my boat. 
I don't have a daddy. I don't have a granddaddy. Right. I don't have anything. Yeah. And they tell him, like, we'll just wait for the insurance right. check or whatever. And he's yeah. like, fuck they're you. I'm bu- not yeah. waiting for they're, the insurance check. They're bullying check. him to wait for the insurance. And, and it's interesting because the Fonda character is... Again, he he clearly had had enough of his debaucherous lifestyle, so he's trying to find some meaning, and he finds it here, but then it's like, yeah, he's just, you know. You know, in that regard, it is a sort of interesting parallel, again, between the two films, right? Because they're both kind of revenge stories, you know? They're both about people see creatures who've been wronged and then try to right those wrongs through violence and intimidation, you know? Yeah, because like... parallel if you think about it. And what's... Yeah, in in both films, ultimately, the quote-unquote protagonists, Richard Harris and Peter Fonda, they both have to accept their fate. And they both do accept their fate completely. Because that's what's interesting, too, is even if Fonda disagrees, uh, you know, about certain things, in the end, he's like, okay... He just sort of accepts it, and it's very bizarre. It's such a 70s kind of character. Oh, yeah. Right? He just is, like, blank. He's just this sort of, like... Well, <laughs> it's kind of a fisherman attitude, too. You know? I mean, when Richard Harris, when his when his buddy dies uh, at the beginning of the film with the first orca Keenan attack... Keenan R.I.P. Yeah, he just comes back, and he says, well, he died at the sea like any fisherman would would want to. You know? Yeah. Um, I mean, it's they one just, thing they to take get... it as it comes. It's the life on the sea. Sure. It's one thing to take it as it comes when it's a, a whale that swallows you up. I think it's another when you've got some <laughs> redneck with a fucking revolver sh- sure. sh- sh- sure. shooting you in a boat, you know? But I get your point. You yeah. Know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Different types of fate, right? <laughs> but yeah, I mean, they, they, it's, it's very, both, I guess, yeah, in that regard, as being 70s films are incredibly fatalistic. Yeah. In mm-hmm. that, right? That, that, no one wins. No one survives, regardless of whatever the outcome is. You know? Right. Well, and I discovered that there is an alternate ending to 92 in the Shade. I don't know if you guys read this. But when the film was released on VHS, it was released with not the ending that we saw. So in the ending of the original theatrical release of 92 in the Shade is what we saw, where Warren Oates confronts Fonda on the open water, gets in his boat, pulls out the gun. They sort of have a couple words, and the gun goes off, and it freeze frames, implying that he's dead. Well, implying what we don't know. I don't know. I feel like because they freeze frame, and it's on a shot of Peter Fonda not even reacting, it could imply anything. I I think it implies he's shot, and he's dead. Yeah, me too. (laughs) He fucking shot his ass. Well, yeah, I mean, of course, that's... (laughs) Probably what it's implying, but don't you think it's a little open? I mean, I guess because yeah, of course it is because it's a freeze frame. Yeah, and it is again. The book ends with him shooting him. Oh, okay. So the alternate ending is the happy ending, and it's a tussle on the boat, shot very poorly, handheld. They just sort of were like, oh, you know, like kind of like wrestling over the gun, and then the 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 client comically bails. And like runs away. Yeah. And that's actually cool. But they, they tussle. The gun goes off a couple times. It gets hit into the water. And then they sit down and they just like have a laugh and they make their peace. And they like it ends with their like arms around each other. Uh, and apparently I think the the change in the ending was requested by McGuane later because he his life had totally changed. And he sort of like oh, wow. retired to Montana to write yeah. for the rest of his life. I had read about even during the making of this 
just like how tumultuous his personal life was, yes. right? That like a marriage was dissolving and he was having an affair with or had had an affair with one of the actresses in the movie, uh, yeah, Elizabeth I, Ashley. I, yes. like, yeah, I think he was married to Margot Kidder, but then... After the movie. Oh, after... Yeah, look, I'll explain it all to you right yeah. now. Here's what <laughs> happened. And, and I actually have a, a funny quote that relates to this from Fonda. But after the movie, McGuane divorced his wife, who's not in the movie, but she married Peter Fonda. Right, after Peter the Fonda movie. And then McGuane married Margot Kidder. And so again, I didn't I haven't read any of his work, but I learned, yeah, he was kind of a celebrity novelist that ran with the in crowd in the 70s. He ran with the Hollywood crowd. He was a sort of, you know, Hemingway, you know, 70s yeah. Hemingway type. Hard drinking, hard partying, hard working. I mean, he published. Womanizing. Yeah, woman, you know, all that stuff, right? And so, yeah, there's this whole, again, <laughs> you know, you look at this film too, which just has these kind of just strange 70s coked out high vibes. Yeah, I mean, we haven't even talked about Margot Kidder yet. And no. Th there's a character. Well, the film does, you know, does everything it can to, yeah, just like make her not a part of it, anything. Yeah. There's this really weird interaction where when he's even first talking about some of these initial difficulties, she tells him, like, why don't you just roll with the tide? Why don't you just go with the flow? And it's this kind of weird sort of interaction when you consider everything that's going to transpire where, you know, he ultimately, I guess, does decide to roll with the tide and go with the flow and look where it <laughs> winds up, you know? Because like you said, he's very resigned to to this and the endings that you're describing are really interesting when you sort of think the whole film is presenting it as this inevitability this inevitability which anyone could see how easily you would have gotten out of it anybody could have gotten out of this shit right but he does just sort of accept it fully and even Warren Oates he doesn't he doesn't want, like you said, he doesn't necessarily want to do it, but he has to do it. And that ending, I actually think, was really powerful in the sense of how empty the whole thing felt, you know? How it did just feel like this sort of pointless, empty gesture, right? Because even if you want revenge, it's not very satisfying to get revenge against somebody who's just sort of like, yeah, go for it. Right. You know? like Yeah, he doesn't really protest. At all. No. So I, ca I can't imagine the film with that other ending you're talking about. Oh, it, yeah. Know? I mean, it doesn't It doesn't make any sense. I mean, know? it completely undercuts the class argument, too, in the sense that Peter Fonda's actions were totally out of proportion to the rather dark pranks that the guys were pulling on him. But it was, you know, it was relatively tame hazing compared to blowing up a, a dude's boat. Absolutely. And I want to read you guys, I found a really great quote from Peter Fonda about this film in a copy of Psychotronic Video, number seven. And Fonda said, I'm not exactly thrilled with 92 in the Shade. I hoped it would turn out to be a better film. I like it in some ways. I'm not happy with the editing and some of the music. You know, it was a film I very much wanted to produce myself. But Elliot Kastner got his hands on the property and produced it. I'm not crazy about Krasner. You see, after he gets a project off the ground, he usually doesn't give a rat's ass about it. And then he later says, in relating to McGuane and, and the wife situation, he said, I married his ex-wife. She divorced him after the film and married me. I guess you could say I got the best part of the deal. <laughs> To be honest with you, that's probably the best summation of the movie and the viewing experience, you know, from him. I feel very similar yeah. when I watch it. It's like, yeah, there's some some great 
actors, you know, having great moments. But and saying some great lines here and there throughout. Yeah, right? yeah. There's I wrote down so many funny lines. I mean, it, it is like well written in that regard, but like as a, you know, film as some sort of, you know, statement on anything, it's kind of just half It's a classic 70s shrug. Yeah, yeah. yeah classic 70s shrug. Do you have a particular favorite line? So when Warren Oates, when Warren Oates is like lamenting everything that's happening to him, and that's when it really struck me that he's this sort of like Shakespearean figure. Uh, he sort of just, you know, as if to the heavens itself, he asks, what is happening to this Florida sportsman? You know, like what? <laughs> he, he calls himself a Florida sportsman. And I yeah. love that so much, you know, and he can't understand like why. And especially when you think of how he's like even introduced to us, where he's just like in a fucking like swamp, like sleeping on some fucking crate, some some crab traps or something like that. You know, he's just this broken down, miserable fuck who is more or less created his own misery but he still is like he cannot understand why the universe has done all this to mm-hmm. him you know everything's yeah, been I, done to him you know? i love the moment when he's got like the steaming pot as he's like prepping to smoke fish outside and he's just got that fridge out in the yard and he sticks the steaming pot and the fridge closes it and immediately just says what the hell am i doing (laughs) (laughs) i'm just making more work for myself it's like again it's like you started doing this whole thing and now you're like blaming the fact that you started doing it for the fact that you're doing it or whatever it makes no sense but yeah he's so uh he's such a funny contradictory figure in the in the film Mm -hmm. i like some of the the folk language that harry dean stanton uses in the film i like when he when peter fonda arrives late and stanton says well you've been scarce as hen's teeth i don't know when i've seen you last scarce as hen's teeth yeah that's what he says (laughs) yeah people are always saying shit like that in this movie yeah they're all yeah they're always saying crazy shit i mean it was yeah there is a lot again to relate it back to fishing because i'll be honest you know i think both of these films have questionable sort of relationships to fishing they're not films where people go out to fish and it's sort of like there's a contentious relationship with it because it's people who are sort of in this world right richard harris yeah he fucks up and then he's like i don't want to kill a whale you know and in this movie i mean these guys don't even like fishing anymore because they're just masters guides i mean maybe they like fishing they just don't have time to well i think Mm. it's also you know the difference when you think about fishing right there's a difference between recreational fishing you know what most people think of gone fishing you know this Mm -hmm. delightful little (laughs) vacation you're gonna take and people who do it for work right and and where fishing isn't you know a hobby it's it's life it's work in in both respects you know whether you're capturing large marine mammals to sell to sea world or you're you're you know the best guide in the keys right you know because if you think about it like there's there's only one scene i can recall in 92 in shade where there's like a fish that's actually caught and it's when he he lets it off the hook right because he hates these fucking rich people you know and they catch this fish and it's a nice like trophy fish and he goes oh i'll go get it for i'll reel it in and then he unhooks it and like kind of like strokes it and lets it go you know peter fonda lets this fish go because it's like man fuck these people you know this like rich this rich couple who are treating me like i'm some sort of fucking peasant you know margo kidder catches a little one too when they're on the bridge oh okay yeah. but, but even then right in both <laughs> yeah. respects it's like nothing to write home about no because that's know? their little when you see fishing, yeah. throughout the film all these walls there's so yeah. many good shots of walls just 
covered in trophy fish and like yeah. mounted fish, you know, and just these men sitting in front of them bitching about fishing, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, yeah, bitching about their job in front of like a beautiful mural uh, of the Keys with, uh, you know, a wall full of mounted fish behind them. That's definitely yeah. the vibe of the movie. And there is, I want to highlight the great se- a scene with the tourist who comes in at the end. Joe Spinell. Uh, oh, God, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I love him. He's, yeah, he's off the wall in this movie, comes in as this sort of, like, uh, hillbilly kind of uh, tourist coming to fish, and he's got a coupon for, like, a free a free tour. Uh, and he starts bothering everyone, but there's a great scene where Roy, the guy who runs the dock, is quizzing him on the names of the fish, and they're just looking at all these sort of, yeah, like, taxidermied fish. This near? Uh, this uh, snapper. No, it's a grouper. Grouper, grouper. Okay, we'll try one more. Take your hat off, will you? Let yeah. your brains cool off. You're thinking too hard. All right, one more time. Starting here. That's a bone. I know that one. I right, know that right. One. Bonefish. Bonefish. Mm-hmm. Listen here. Uh, that's uh, like that one over there. And that one and this one? Yeah, hey, all snappy. The snapper, the snapper, right, snapper. right. Now, listen here. Remember the fin? Uh, the blue, blue, there? blue, blue fin tuna. Blue fin Got tuna, that. right. This is over here. Long, sleek. Silver looking sucker, huh? Uh, Plum forgot that one. And I was loving every minute. Yeah, it was funny. I was keeping track, actually, about how many fish were mentioned by name in each film to, as like a like a arbitrary way of like bal- you know, rating them as like fishing films. And Orca, actually, only I only caught two references, which is the Great White and the Orca. Like when they're talking about the fish that are fleeing, none of those guys ever say what kind of fish uh, it is. But in 92 in the Shade, we have shrimp... Snapper, grouper, bluefin tuna, bonito, cobia, houndfish, guardfish, African pompino, and remora fish are all mentioned in 92 in the Shade, which is pretty nice. Very nice. I do love, too, that Joe Spinell, that character you're talking about, is like... It's this proto like Groupon guy, yeah. you know, like yeah. you know, how, like people always lament oh, yeah. like, oh, the fucking people with Groupons coming in, you know, like he's like this early yeah. like Groupon guy, you know, like he's waving his coupon around, and then like from captain to captain, they're like trying to pass this guy off, you know, like Warren Oates gives him to Harry Dean, he's like, this guy's a hawkfish, he's gonna find everything, and then Harry Dean gets this guy, and he's like, fuck this, and he's like, I got the perfect guide for you, the best guy, the best hawkfish, they keep calling him hawkfish. And then he dumps him off on on Peter Fonda, you know, because it's like this fucking, this cheap asshole with a coupon from the big city or wherever the hell he's from. Oh, I'm Ole Slat. I'm mine for sub by two minutes, little sofa coal in the Bull Mountains. Yes, we have to blast through 20 feet of sandstone to reach the van. We have two spoils banks and eight different straddle arrangements. And I'm damn proud of Why it. Why are you telling me this? Because of my unparalleled subterranean work performance, my union local has awarded me this trip and this certificate. And telling me to one day's fishing with you. <laughs> and boy, goddamn, fishing is what I'm all about. And he's waving it around. And then, and then Warren Oates tells him, like, all right, well, you just hang out uh, 17 days. I can take you. You know, he's like, sit around. He's like, I'm not sitting around paying Howard, Howard Johnson, Johnson for 17 yeah. days. Oh, man, he's so good. And again, like the film is full of like great character actors this film is full of those people who you know not a lot of leading men among this cast i mean aside from like peter fonda you know you have a lot of people who we think i know in our conversations are some of the treasures of the american like acting legacy but you know warren oates harry dean these are these are men who often the greatest yeah have these just really memorable sort of supporting roles in so many great films that of course we are always like 
they should have been more. These were the the best actors of the age, you know, the best actors of their of their time. And and it's it is good, I think, in the sense that even if the film is, you know, a little shaky in some respects, like you do have all these great actors together having really great moments throughout this film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know, there's there is an interesting personal aspect to it. Uh, I read that Oates, Fonda, and McGuane all had houses in Key West before they made the movie. Right? It was just you know they all had like getaway little little spots there, and so yeah, for them it was like their vacation house movie. You know, like yeah. let's go down in the Keys, we'll stay at our places, uh, and another interesting just sort of addendum but McGuane's third wife is Jimmy Buffett's sister yeah true story so yeah McGuane like you know Key West OG like they were around back then changes in latitude baby (laughs) (laughs) you gotta love gonna play us out to changes in latitude yeah yeah, I mean, you know, I think it's funny because again we we chose a topic and I think both of these films in, in certain respects are, are are very interesting to sort of pair with the idea of the the theme gone fishing and you know when I was even trying to think about like okay what's you know I was thinking about you know my memories of, of fishing throughout life you know when my dad would take me fishing and stuff like that um, you are not a boy scout Right. I was well. I was a Cub Scout. Cub I never, Scout. I never okay. quite made it to boy. Yeah. You know, I stayed a Cub. Same. I was a Cub Scout and then abandoned the first year of boy. Yeah. You guys will be boys one of these days. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know, I guess in that regard, it's like you know, for me, these films actually kind of more sum up my experiences of fishing. I don't have a lot of really fond memories of fishing. For me, <laughs> it was always getting seasick, being hot, being pissed off not really catching something, you know? So in that regard, I guess for me, I, I thought that they were, they were quite, um, they were quite on point for my experiences sure. because I did rewatch, uh, gone fishing anyway, well, you, you know? Yeah. And I will tell you, there's not a lot of fishing in that movie either. Uh, so, you know what, I guess, what are some of the other, like, well, good... that reminds me of, you know, the, one of the great j- jokes of all time is the Howard Hawks film, Man's Favorite Sport, in which it's all about a fishing competition, and yet in the film, he fails to fish the entire time because it's a screwball comedy. Yeah. Uh, so that's like, to me, that's one of the great fishing movies, but it's just like an ironic joke because we all know what Man's Favorite Sport is, right? Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, but so I guess that's what I was going to say, though. Like, what are, for you even, you know, like, what are some of the fishing movies that that come to your mind that you really quite like? Yeah, I mean, the first thing that comes to mind is obviously f- fishing with John. Um, that is, like, probably oh, yeah. the most, like, delightful piece of fishing media that we have, you know, Um because again, it's also they're just dedicated hangouts, and that's what fishing can be at its best. So it's nice that you get it in just you know twenty five minute chunks. Hanging and also, out. not a lot of actually, uh, not a lot of actual catching of fish in fishing right. with John. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I do love um, like the type of narratives where there's like um, a particular fish that is fabled, and everyone's trying to catch. Um, so one of my favorite fishing narratives is actually that episode of The Simpsons when. They're going on that marriage retreat to try and repair their marriage, but Homer keeps trying to duck out so he can catch that giant fish in the lake. That's, for some reason, a fishing uh, narrative I think of. 
I think lot. it's a, a good point, though, that you bring up when you, you think about the ways that fishing has been used in, in media and literature and movies and TV and all that kind of stuff. And a huge aspect of it is this like this this elusive thing that you're going after, that you're trying to capture, trying to catch, you know, and often it's it's what, you know meaning the meaning of life there's a sort of philosophical aspect to it but i think that's something that you know for me i always also come to it's just the idea of not catching more than it is actually catching something actually attaining that thing you want you know but that it's it's still out there it's always out Mm -hmm. there and maybe all you need is patience and a willingness to let it come to you more than you have to go out and find it you know, so. And you made a good point earlier when you were talking about the difference with leisure fishing as opposed to, you know, workmen like fishing, fishing for a living. Because the other fishing films I think of are all those Italian films from the late 40s and Stromboli. the 50s. Mm-hmm. Where you just get whole sequences dedicated to, you know, fi- fishermen and fisherwomen at work. Yeah. You know? What do you guys think about? Because uh, this was one that did pop into my mind, but then I thought it was too too obvious. But what are your what are your thoughts? What do you guys think of? Um, oh man, now I'm blanking on the title. The one with uh, George Clooney and you know the the disaster on the sea. Uh, Perfect Storm. Perfect Storm. I've actually never seen it. You've never seen Perfect Storm? You've no. seen Perfect Storm. Uh, I saw right? it in theaters. Yeah, I, I liked it at the time. <laughs> <laughs> I can't really. Yeah, uh, I couldn't speak on it from memory. But I was thinking. Because isn't that a Wolfgang Peterson? Yes. It's a Wolfgang Peterson film. He's a big water guy. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Another different type of fishing. Yes. Uh, but uh, a great... I actually did think about doing Das Boot, uh, <laughs> bringing Das Boot to the table, because sure. it's a different type of fishing. And in submarine warfare, they refer to torpedoes as fish, right? But it's also a similar kind of setup, you know, especially for submarine warfare. Of, you know, you're just out there, you're hunting these things down, you're sitting, you're being patient, you got to wait for the right moment and yeah wolfgang peterson i i think i remember really liking perfect storm but i thought you were gonna say you almost did a fishing movie like ph fishing uh, oh, like God. like uh, catfish or something you know that would be, that would uh, be funny, i should have right? just done a fish concert film that that would have been, <laughs> yeah. been i'm drawing <laughs> i'm drawing a blank on the the sensory dock leviathan leviathan, leviathan. there we go. Leviathan that's a great fisherman movie. yeah great fisherman movie yeah and and more graphic and horrific in certain respects even than orca yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? totally because like, even i mean aside from in the beginning of orca that that really horrible fucking scene in the beginning you know it's not actually that gory it's, no. it's a lot less gory than i remembered it being mm-hmm. you know but but i think it's just that first scene just gets so in your brain yeah because i remember you had you know were saying that it's it's really gnarly and then i was like oh it's rated pg though but then i was like well i suppose jaws was rated pg as well <laughs> you know but yeah they certainly get away with an extreme moment of violence and uh because it they kind of downplay it for other chunks of the movie. I remember when I was about 10 or 11, my dad took me to see A River Runs Through It in uh, theaters, and I just remember thinking, like, why the fuck am I watching this? Like, I'm 10 <laughs> years old. Like, I don't, I'd never been fly fishing. I'd barely been fishing, you know? Uh, and I remember just, like, when I was a kid, I would think, like, what's a boring movie? A River Runs Through It. Apologies to A River Runs Through It. I haven't seen it since I was <laughs> <laughs> maybe maybe you're a good film. Call call us. Yeah. Like a perfect storm. Maybe. Like, you, know? <laughs> you can't really remember. 
But I will say this. I might go on a limb here and say that um, fishing sucks. I don't like fishing. Oh, I love fishing. Oh, I'm not a fan of fishing at all. Uh, <laughs> you got the right company. Fishing is real. I mean, and solitary, too. I just, just I like being on a boat. Yeah, yeah, being on a boat's great. You know, I'd rather do some, like, maybe, like, you know... To, to try to wakeboard and instead just get dragged behind a boat a little bit. Yeah. That's more fun to me in drinking beer. I guess I like environments that are in their design about waiting. You know, like I like riding on the bus. It's like, well, you got nothing to do. You know, yeah, you're on that's the why bus. I watch baseball. Sure. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, slow cinema. That's right. You know, but that's fishing's like that too. You know, it's like being on a plane. You're like, well, here I am. I just got to wait. That's, you know. There's not that other pressure on me to yes. do other things. Unless you're 92 in the shade, then you got a lot of pressure on you to yeah. stop your guiding and get out of the water, or else Harry Dean and Warren Oates got to shoot you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's ne- worse ways to go. I, I think I'd rather get <laughs> shot by Warren Oates than get torn in half oh my by God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I would rather, I would much rather be, honestly, if I could go out, I, I would want to be shot by Warren Oates. Yeah. 100%. You know? Yeah. In a boat. In the middle of the water somewhere. In the middle of a desert somewhere. Sure, sure. Wherever. It, it's funny when the orca like knocks down that house and then tears that woman's leg off, and he takes the leg and the cast, because she's like walking around with a big cast on her leg uh, for a chunk of the movie. <laughs> and I just thought it was funny that he takes he takes that leg instead of the you know the one that's available that he can the like, chew on. Fine leg. Well, yeah, yeah, the one he could eat. You know? <laughs> it was Bo Derek's leg. It was valuable. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is kind of funny, though, if you think about how, how shitty that would be. You know, you're like, I just got this fucking cast on. <laughs> the whole leg gets torn off because she survives that. Right. She survives that. It's like. And you go through the chore of the cast. Right. I, I went through it. all that shit. I was on crutches for a fucking week. Well, now I'm going to be on crutches for a lot longer, I guess, you know. <laughs> Good practice run. All right. I have one last note I want to add. And again, I think this, you know, and we can connect this back to sort of like Anthony Mann where he sort of makes these, like, Shakespearean westerns. What do you think about 92 in the Shade as a key western? Uh, you know, I did think, think about it, it. I did think about it when I was watching it. Like, I felt that way. I'm like, this feels very much like, like, a, like a western, you know, because it's, it's, it's building up to a duel. I mean, the whole right. film is this sort of prolonged duel, uh, that will inevitably lead to violence of some kind. So yeah. yeah, I mean, it definitely struck me while I was watching it. I, I felt that way. I I'm trying look to think up if there's any other key westerns. Yeah, I'm trying to think uh, of a, what about a, is it Key Largo? Is that like a sorry? I didn't mean to you <laughs> off, that's like uh, in it's the, kind of a noir film. Where the hell key, key Largo? Key Largo. I don't know where Key Largo is to be honest. Too many keys. I've never There's been. A lot of keys. My family did a whole trip to the keys, but uh, I didn't go for some reason. So. Oh, I went down there once. Like I said, I had family down in Florida, so I went down to Florida a bunch. I just remember riding across that ridiculously long fucking bridge, right? Which I think is in the movie. I think they have a shot of that in the movie, or it might not be the bridge, but a lot of long bridges down there connecting the yeah. keys. You know, once uh, when Molly and I were driving through Southern Arizona, we stayed on this guy's land. Um, his name was A.J. Redhawk, and he was like a survivalist that grew up um, in Saguaro National Park. And he, he said it was like, it was the 80s. We were all afraid of the Russians. And he would just go out with a knife and like for days to see how long he could last. And then he would come back, but he had quite the colorful life. And he told us about how he had set up a fishing boat slash restaurant type thing, pretty similar in Key West, but that a hurricane like ravaged it. And that's why he had to radically change his lifestyle, and he ended up coming back to the desert. 
So wow. AJ, if you're out there listening, um, th- thanks again. Shout out to survivalist, <laughs> yeah. Mr. Survi- Red Hawk. Yeah. That's badass. My uncle Ronnie is a big fisherman down in, in, um, the South, you know, he's lived in Alabama and New Orleans and Florida and, uh, he's blown up like three or four boats. Uh, I was there for actually one of the boats blowing up, which was, um, quite amusing to me. I'd love that to was see way more amusing up. than, than any of the fishing to be honest with you, him <laughs> well, blowing up his own fucking boat. The one that I saw got blown up was because there was a water moccasin that got in it. And uh, he got very frustrated with it and was trying to get it out of there and ended up blowing up the whole fucking boat. So mm-hmm. it wasn't lo- a big I, boat. Yeah, I would love to see a boat explode, though. It, it's um, one of the best things that do blow up because you've got the water right there, so it's the, the fire is reflected. It's an compelling image. Yeah, this wasn't quite the spectacle. It was on a pond. So, you know, it wasn't <laughs> so, like Miami Vice shit, you know, or even like the usually, boat explosion in this, which is quite big. But, yeah, but it's know. nice because they're all like little pieces of wood that like shoot out everywhere, too. You know, oh, yeah, are fragile. It, ex- it explodes outwards. Th- this was more like everything does. a huge boat, a huge hole got blown in the boat. Oh. <laughs> and then it went down pretty quick. Yeah, uh, it was more a glorified rowboat than anything. Sure. But but he's blown up a couple speedboats. Uh, I know that for a fact. Yeah. Not the best guide, again, if you want to go out fishing. Don't, don't go with my Uncle Ronnie. Sure. All right. So next week, it's my turn to pick. Oh, boy. Coming around the bend. And I want you guys to bring me movies about summertime. I'm putting my glasses on. I'm putting my sunscreen on the nose. I'm getting my lifeguard whistle out. And I'm ready to I'm ready to do this thing. Beautiful. Best summer. Best summer of our lives. Uh, yeah. That's great, man. That's awesome. Cool. Sweet. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for coming fishing with us, everyone. And remember, you know, it's just out there. Just be patient. But the whale ones? No, 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 I think I'll explain something to you. I don't know what this creature wants. You don't know what he wants. The villagers don't know, nobody knows. But if he's anything like a human being, whatever he wants isn't necessarily what he should have. You said that I... Forget what I said. I thought you were a sensitive bore and I exaggerated to make a point, but I was wrong. I'll take that as a compliment. I'll see you around. I'm off and gone. Nolan? Nolan, don't you dare hang up on me.